In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Mother most chaste. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. I decided to do a conference on conjugal chastity, which is the least desirable topic actually to talk about in from some respects, but I think it's one of the most necessary. Um, probably most of you, this isn't going to be too much of a difficulty, but there are certain things which I think need to be understood because um, most traditionalists are trying to lead a life in accordance with what the church demands and desires, and so as a result, very often there are questions about certain limits within the context of, of the conjugal act. And so it's important to go into this. Taking the cue from the saints, it tends to be the best thing to do is to talk to about things very frankly, modestly, of course, being observed, but very frankly. find that if it's not dealt with frankly, that as a rule, it tends to, um, you know, you don't really, it doesn't become clear to people because you end up trying to couch it behind certain terms and things like that. Again, modesty being observed. Chastity, and also because of the nature of the conference and the things we're going to talk about, it's not appropriate to talk about this in mixed company, so I thought it best to talk. I would give the conference, then you can talk uh, or talk with it with your wives and uh, communicate anything you think necessary with your wives. Also, since it is the man's responsibility ultimately um, to tend to the spiritual welfare of the family, it's his obligation even more than the wives to make sure that modesty and chastity and things of this thing are properly observed within the home. Um, okay. But, of course, I'm going to make the uh, conference available, but I haven't decided how, how available yet. Chastity is the virtue and the concupiscible appetite by which one moderates the desires for venereal pleasure. Now, what that means is, is we have um, a lower, we have an intellect and will, of course, but then we also have lower appetites which incline. We all know this. We have emotions or appetites which go contrary to what we actually want or will. And so there's one of them which has a desire for, um, for um, bodily goods, both food and also in content and, and sex, basically, is what it comes down to. And that, inc- that appetite um, has to be moderated by virtues. And one, of the, the one that moderates the inclination in that virtue, in that... Um, in that faculty is chastity, which moderates its inclination towards sex, so that the inclination is always according to due circumstances and in a due way. The chastity is different from continence, in that continence is in the will. But continence is, is even if our appetites are are in a tumult or there's something going on, continence is the virtue by which the will keeps steadfast in doing the right thing despite the tumult of the appetites. Chastity, on the other hand, and so as a result, a continent man can have problems with um, the appetites being inclined in ways that are inappropriate, but the chaste man is one who, or woman for that matter, is one in which the concupiscible appetite only inclines towards these things in the, mo- in the right way, right time, and in the right circumstances. Chastity, the saints say, are of three kinds. The first is that which pertains to those under religious vows and promises. And in that particular case, they have to have absolute chastity. That's what they're required to live. Then there are those who are single 
uh, and they also have to have chastity, but they can look forward to um, legitimate marriage in which um, conjugal relations can be had. But before marriage, of course, conjugal chastity has to be perfect. It cannot engage in any type of exterior actions or thoughts which are contrary to um, purity. Then there are those who are married. Now, once you're married, your wife, as the saints say, becomes due matter. That is, you can think about your wife sexually. Um, of course, it has to be done moderatedly so that the person still can function elsewhere. But, they, but because she is due matter, because they now have bodily rights, he can think of her in that fashion. And so what's legitimate for a married man with respect to his wife, and only his wife, is not legitimate for anyone else. Marital chastity, therefore, can be broken into three parts. The first is fidelity. And what this is, is this is absolute exclusive enjoyment of marital goods, the conjugal act and things like that, within the confines of marriage. In other words, it can only be enjoyed by spouses who are legitimately married with each other alone. And, of course, marriage is defined as contracting between a man and a woman. Right, so we just so we all have that clear if you don't already all right two the second um, type of the second part of marital chastity is what we call the mode of conjugal relations and what this means is is that there are certain kinds of conjugal there's certain ways of engaging in the conjugal act which are proper and ones which are not which we'll see here in a little bit and then there's what we call mutual acts. That's the technical term in moral theology for foreplay. So a mutual act is, is a type of foreplay, which we'll talk a little bit more as we go on. The third part is modesty. The first part of marital chastity is modesty. In relationship to each other, modesty means a, little, a slightly different thing because they can talk about certain things relating to these, but they still have to maintain proper modesty within the home for the sake of the children because children um, should not be seeing these things and that type of thing. Okay, as to mutual acts or foreplay, sometimes it's called. I'll probably stick more to the technical terms because they have a, they're a little clearer, I think. Um, mutual acts among the unmarried are always morally sinful. So foreplay of any kind among people who are unmarried is morally sinful everywhere in all cases. Among the married, um, some kinds of foreplay are permissible and some are not. And we'll that's what we're going to talk about here. But before we go into that, I want to talk about a specific term because this, there's a specific set of principles that you have to judge the action by to see whether it's morally permissible or not. The first is the term called pollution. Um, and this is the term which moralists assign the meaning of the of of the voluntary effusion of semen outside of coition. So in other words, basically it's the, it's the effusion of semen outside of the actual conjugal act itself. So very often the moralists will use this in the context of masturbation, so, you know, or things of this sort. Or what's called onanism, which is during the conjugal act, the man retracts and there's the effusion of semen. Um, pollution means any effusion of semen through masturbation or any other way. For those who are married, okay, so now, so there's the, the term pollution. And the reason it's called pollution is because um, normally um, the effusion of semen is only supposed to occur within 
the actual context of marital union. Um, that we're actually in the context of the marital marital act. There is um, okay. Uh, incidentally, pollution also applies to women, in the sense that women can also reach a certain stage in the conjugal act or in other ways, which take on certain similarities to the male effusion, and so as a result, or pollution, um, and so as a result the same actually applies to women as does to men. I know that some moralists say that it's okay for women to, uh, to, to use a colloquial term, reach climax outside the context of, um, well, and that's fine as long as the male doesn't do it, but the moralists don't, good moralists, now by good moralists I'm talking about the saints and the people who've written based on the saints say that that's not the case. There is a bit of a liberalism today among, among those regarding this. For those who are married, well first, for those who are unmarried, passionate kissing is immoral because it's an approximate occasion of sin. That doesn't mean that you can't engage in legitimate acts of expression with respect to each other when you're engaged um, through kissing and things like that, but the kissing cannot be passionate in the sense of it being somewhat of, of a, um, uh, an antecedent to things that are a bit more involved. Acts, okay, so then there are different kinds of acts when we're talking about a relationship. There's a mutual acts, which we call foreplay, which we'll talk about in a minute. But then there are acts which are connected to coition in some way, or can be. So, for instance, sexually stimulating acts. These are the types that are sexually stimulated, which are not necessarily foreplay yet. For example, kissing, um, embracing, certain kinds of embracing, certain kinds of touching, certain looks. I mean people who are married can look at each other and each know what that particular look means. Um, petting and things of this sort. These are m always morally lawful in connection to coition. That is, if you're in the act of coition and you're engaging with these, they're always morally lawful. That is, insofar as they lead to as preparatory of coition or the completion thereof. These are morally listed because they aid the nature and the performance of coition. Now the saints always say that if, I, if, if someone has a right to the perfect, they have a right to what's in the imperfect. And what they mean by that is, if somebody has a right to the marital act, they also have a right to those things which leave up to the marital, marital act, provided that the natural law is followed. One distinction, however, must be made, and that is, when these acts are done, if there are acts that are engaged, for instance, in uh, petting is normally considered a uh, is it considered a mutual act? It's considered part of foreplay. But um, provided that any of these in these types of actions, such as kissing, embracing, and things of this sort, um, if there is danger of pollution, then they have to you have to and and it's not in the context of the conjugal act. Then it, then they have to be avoided. That's what the moralists say, even for married people. Because you can't, you, basically what it comes down to is because God condemned onanism in the Old Testament, you can't engage in anything that is basically in its, on the level of onanism. And so you have to be very careful about observing that. But if they're used in order to make the coition possible, for instance, if some women suffer from frigidity or some things like that, they may be used if it makes it possible or if it actually helps in the performance of the action, then it can actually be considered morally good. The mutual acts, or foreplay, are sexually stimulating acts which one spouse does to another, and these are broken into three kinds. 
you know, probably never thought that they more or less have done this much analysis of all this. <laughs> all right. The first are those in which there is no danger of pollution and which there is no intention to, in order to actually have climax outside the context of conjugal act. That is, insofar as the... Uh, sorry. Um, these... These may be done, and they are lawful for a just cause. That is, you can engage in certain kinds of petting and things like that, provided that there is no danger of pollution, and it can be done for example as a sign of affection. Even though there may be times that accidentally or unintentionally that ha that pollution happens, as long as it's not intended, as long as the nature of the act you're engaging in isn't going to cause that. Uh, so, as I mentioned, sometimes masturbation is called pollution. Most moralists say that masturbation, now by masturbation is self-stimulation, that done in the context of even the, co uh, the of foreplay, self-stimulation is considered by every moralist as immoral. For men. So men cannot reach pollution before or after the conjugal act has ceased. That is, before there's any coition or after the coition, that is, once it's stopped. He has to do it within the conjugal act itself. The woman, on the other hand, the moralists say, can stimulate herself before the conjugal act in order to dispose herself to it, but it has to be immediately connected to the conjugal act. And so she can stimulate herself to the point of pollution if that's necessary for her to engage in the conjugal act or for the sake of being fertilized. She can do it within the conjugal act, and then she can do it after the conjugal act, if the man retracts before she reaches pollution, in order so that she can be fertilized. But it must be immediately connected to the conjugal act. We would normally associate a sufficient reason for engaging in these types of acts, the various moralist lists, for instance, an increase in mutual love, satisfaction of the spouse, and things of this sort. Um, some of the moralists even talk about doing it in order to keep um, one spouse from running off and being unfaithful. The argument being that since spouses have a right, as I mentioned, the perfect, they also have a right to these imperfect acts, so spouses have a right to engage in foreplay. Okay, the second kind of act are those in which there is a danger of pollution, but there's no intention to do so. Some moralists hold that even if there is a danger of pollution, but there is also a justifying reason for this action, such as averting suspicion on the side of the spouse that maybe you're unfaithful, or restraining some another spouse, your spouse from adultery, or in obedience to a legitimate request, then it may be morally justifiable. Um, obviously, what this means is is that if there is danger, given the type or nature of the act, um, then you can engage in it, provided that if if the da danger becomes imminent, it has to be ceased. Um, these, moral, these actions are considered morally listed for a grave cause. Okay. Third kind, those in which there is danger of pollution and there's intention to do so. And all the good moralists say that this is morally sinful. So to engage in foreplay knowing that climax is going to occur outside of coition, the good moralists say this is immoral. Um, it should be noted um, a few things. St. Thomas Aquinas asks a, qu asks a question, and actually St. Augustine, or St. Um, Alphonsus also deals with this, regarding um, is it required that 
you always engage that that basically that it's always in order to be morally licit that one always engages or one only engages in what they call vaginal sex is that the only thing that's required that that you have to engage in it in that way and the question comes in St. Alphonsus Liguri he actually asks I'll give you the exact quote this is how he asked the question is it always a moral sin for a male to put his penis in the mouth of his wife that's exactly how a saint asks the question because he has to deal with this if, if, in order for the sake of clarity. St. Thomas sets the stage for the answer for St. Alphonsus, and St. Alphonsus bases his answer on this. St. Thomas says that, he says that a woman is designed in a specific way, so that he uses the term vas, V-A-S in Latin, which we get the word vas from, but basically a vas, or the, this vas, is a place is as a place where something is meant to be put. In other words, you put something in a vase, you know, like um, uh, uh, like flowers and things of that sort. What St. Thomas says is, is that given the nature of the natural law and the structure of the generative faculties, it is clear, he says, that the male organ is designed by nature to be placed in the vaginal canal of, a wo- of, of his wife and not in her mouth or anally. So, for St. Thomas, it's clear that anal sex and, or, and oral sex in which of that nature is immoral. St. Alphonsus says that he considers that, that he comes back and he, he um, clarifies a few things in the context of it, and he says that he considers that people to engage in, un, what they, that's called undue coition, by the way, um, in the sense, or, uh, or an undue mode of coition. And St. Um, uh, Alphonsus says it's a kind of species of lust and doesn't have its place in the proper marital um, chastity. He's both, for St. Thomas and St. Alphonsus, to engage in, th- in um, that kind of oral sex or in, that, uh, or in anal sex is considered a vice contrary to nature. It's analogous to sodomy. Okay, so then this, the saints, uh, then some other theologians, I should say, ask the question, well, what about oral sex with respect to women? Some moralists allow it when, when men perform oral sex on women. However, the principles have to still be applied. There has to be no danger of pollution, and the issue of the vase has to be rightly observed. That means there's just certain things that don't belong in the vaginal canal of a woman. So that means no sex toys in that respect. Uh, it also means that um, oral sex is permitted on the woman as long as it's purely external and there's no possibility of pollution. Um, St. Thomas says, that too, that uh, the male reproductive organ by its very nature is not designed to be put in other things other than the female vase, so you don't go around putting it in strange places. Conversely, oh, sorry, from this we can say that oral sex is most probably a moral sin even for married couples. That is, we're talking about oral sex of a little legitimate kind regardless of who's performing it. That is, if pollution is going to occur or if it's done in an undue mode. Use of pornography within the context of marriage is also forbidden since the viewing of pornography causes one's senses to fall on undue matter. What does that mean? Well, the saints used to say, St. Thomas particularly said, that he used to call what they call the matter or the object of the moral act. 
and the matter is the 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 thing upon which your action falls. So, for instance, in the act of throwing a baseball, the baseball is the matter which you throw. Now, throwing is the action, but it has to fall on some type of thing. So, as I always say in my classes in uh, virtues, there is a distinction between you know. There's a big distinction in matter. So there's a big distinction between throwing a midget in midget bowling and throwing a baseball. There's a big difference. Well, in like manner, when you're married and you exchange bodily rights, your wife's body becomes legitimate matter for your for sexual activity. No other no other woman does, and so as a result. Um, you can't engage in conjugal relations with some other woman once you're married. But on the same on the same on the same level, it, the Church of Christ taught that you know he who desires to commit adultery, or he he, do, he who looks on a woman lustfully has committed adultery in her heart, and he is already forbidden even intellectually conceiving or or um, of conceiving of undue matter. What this means is, is that in the case of pornography, our, the senses fall of the, of the matter of the woman, fall on matter, on someone else's body that is not due to them. This is why it's not morally permissible for married couples to view pornography and then try out the various things that they see there. It's not permitted. Modesty, therefore, must be observed even among those who are married. So what does chastity mean for a married couple? Well, chastity means that you can engage in the conjugal act, but it has to be in a due mode. You can engage in things like passionate kissing and things like that, provided there's no danger of pollution. You can engage in those kinds of foreplay which observe the natural law structure of the faculties. Um, as I mentioned, observing the proper vas with respect to the woman. And you can, uh, you, know, you can engage in discussions about these things and things like that, provided it's always with respect to your wife. But with respect to but but this means therefore that chastity in a, someone who's married makes sure that the inclinations for the desire for conjugal union are done in a due mode that is you want to do it in the right way and you do it according to right circumstances and right time so you can't you know do it out in public or you know things like that but connected to this also means that there is a certain modesty why because Modesty protects the external or external expressions regarding these matters. So between a married couple, there has to be modesty that they only express their desires or inclinations in matters that are licit, and that's only between the two of them. To go outside that context is immodest, or to suggest things or to talk about those things um, in an immoral way. That is to you know to try and get your wife to do things that are immoral. Um, is contrary to modesty and it's contrary to chastity. Uh, it also is necessary to train children because parents have to be modest. There is a time and a place for these things and so chastity for a married um, man and a married woman means they only engage in those things at the t- uh, um, according to a certain time and they have to protect these things. The church has been very clear, particularly in the documents before Vatican II, they were very clear that that conjugal union and the pleasure that arises from venereal union is so vehement that it requires a very strong control and a, and a certain mechanism, and it even requires an institution, marriage, to keep the thing properly ordered. As a result, people who are married have to lead a, a chaste life, and they also must lead a modest life 
not only with respect to them to each other, in the sense of modesty of making sure that they don't ever cross the lines, but when those, but it, but also modesty can mean that under due circumstances you can talk about these things, etc. But in relationship to the children, this means that it has to be protected so that the children aren't introduced to these things too early. I know that many people say, well, I don't want my kid to learn it from some other kid on the playground, so when he was five, I sat him down and told him the birds and the bees. I'm like, they're not even ready for it. Why are you taking their, in their innocence away from them at such an early age? That's just ridiculous. It's better, you know, because now they've got to be thinking and dealing with this. Why don't you just wait until they're of the proper age? But it means, though, that modesty and chastity have to be um, done within the con that have to be observed within the context of marriage. This is the one conference I'm going to allow questions, only so that make sure in case people have any questions. Uh, just a warning: if you're wondering it, probably so is everyone else in the room. So don't worry about asking the question. Of course, on the other hand, you may not want to ask questions. Let's get out of this subject so we can go on to something else. <laughs> yeah. Is um, one thing you didn't cover is the using the hand. Right. It can be as long as the hand is not the proper organ for the vase. So it cannot be placed in the vase, but it can be used for stimulating, provided it's ordered towards conjugal union or provided there's no danger of pollution. That's what the, the theologians say. Anyway. The second thing is you said that there's danger of pollution is all right for grave For instance, suppose suppose a wife is concerned that her husband if she basically if she doesn't um, please him sexually that she's afraid that he'll go seeking it elsewhere so obviously if it becomes imminent she has to stop but um, there are times when it, the pollution occurs when there was no indication that it was imminent so in that that's the kind of situation we're talking about so that would be a just cause um, although there's not too many of those as a rule Nobody else wants to ask any questions. Yeah, it's a delicate topic, but it's one of those things that needs to be talked about because um, you can displease God. And oh, I should say one other thing that I forgot to say. Because foreplay and these things are listed morally, they're actually good morally, uh, provided they're done according to due mode and under due circumstances and all the principles being observed. And so is the conjugal act. is a good thing. God created it and intended it to be a good thing which means that you can actually use the conjugal act to gain grace. How? The church has always taught that any act done, any morally good act done in the state of grace with a charitable intention or with a supernatural intention gains grace. So I know couples who actually pray before they get in conjugal act, A, to moderate them in the, in the process of it, but also B, to, uh, to gain the grace if they have a supernatural intention of beforehand so they can actually gain grace of it. It's jazzness to think that it's evil. It's only moral evil outside the context of the family relations or done in an undue mode. Yeah. As far as children go, I mean, first I was just visiting my daughter and her little five-year-old granddaughter. She yells up to her, she's in the bath. Be sure and clean your vagina. Yeah. And I said, why do you use words like that? She said, well, that's the word they teach her in school. <laughs> yeah. That's precisely the problem. Well, what you have to do is you have to know what your school's teaching, and you have to keep you have to keep uh, 
You have to keep your kids away from that type of thing. It's basically what it comes down to. In a lot of cases, that means turning the TV off because a vast majority of the stuff that's on TV is grossly immodest and contrary to chastity. But um, it also means that you have to be able, you have to be knowledgeable about the morality of these things and also, in a certain sense, natural law. God designed us this way. He had intended it this way. This is what he wanted. So when the children ask the questions, again, in a frank way, but modestly, you can explain it to them so that they recognize what's morally right and what's morally wrong. Um, and I think, you know, to, to try and be clear-headed about it, it may be the case that given the circumstances today, you may have to talk about the birds and the bees a little <coughs> earlier with kids than you might have had, say, you know, 50 years ago. But it's best, of course, if it comes from parents because the parents carry the proper authority because they're the moral teachers of the child. And it should not come from somebody at school. And there are certain things, of course, this also means there are certain things that are done in sex education that just grossly violate modesty. For You know, you hear these stories about the various things <coughs> they talk to students about what they should do with themselves and things like that. Well, these things are just completely over the line. And... Um, in a sex-crazed world, there's going to be more and more coercion on the side of those who are disordered to want to control these things because they don't want to be denied them in any way or to have any reminder that there's something wrong with them. They want to get other people encouraged in their sin so that they feel comfortable about it. So, you know, it's one of those things that... That's one of the reasons why I'm a big supporter of homeschooling. I know some people aren't, but I'm a big supporter of it because um, it's within the context of homeschooling that a person can more control what their children are going to see and hear, particularly on the playgrounds, too, because it's getting really bad there, too. Yeah? Uh, Father, so then, morally, there's no difference uh, between what's morally acceptable for a married couple during their procreation years as older, as in their older years. Right, that's right. There's no difference. So even when you get older, um, this principle still still applies. Moderation is less of a problem. I'm sorry? Moderation is less of a problem. When you're older. <laughs> that's right. It is. Yeah. And that's because, you know, when you're younger, the hormones are all over the place. But, uh, yeah. Um, we had counsel from a priest not too many years ago uh, about uh, conjugal absence right. being a virtue. Right. Um, I didn't fully understand it because it wasn't really explained very well. We were, we were just instructed this is probably something we should think about doing. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you have any comments on, on as that as a recommendation or yeah. as, as, a, as a practice or as a, um, as a virtue? Yeah. The saints very often talk about um, and recommend that from time to time couples actually abstain from the conjugal act, even in those times that they might desire to, for the sake of building chastity, that's for the sake of building moderation in relationship to it. So the abstinence, technically speaking, there is no virtue of abstinence regarding sex. There's only abstinence is actually the virtue in relationship to food. But they use it, they transpose the term in, in, the, in the context of conjugal relations, um, which is a legitimate use of the term. I'm just saying it's, it's a technical point, granted. But what, um, so in other words, it's actually a virtue because um, there's, two, there's two aspects. One, it, it builds moderation. The second thing is, is anytime we offer up or forego any licit good 
for the spiritual well-being of another or for ourselves, we can gain grace from it. So as a result, it's a way of practicing self-denial um, and detachment from created goods. And so in that respect, it actually builds up virtue and detachment. And so very often the saints will recommend it. Um, sometimes, you know, people will say, oh yeah, we've been abstinent for 40 years. That's because they can't stand each other. Well, that's not a virtue. I mean, the virtue is that you actually like the person and want to be with them, but you decide to forego it for the sake of giving up less of good. It's the same thing as like giving up food. You know, you might give up a steak for a day or two or something like that eat steak that often but if you, you might give up you know a specific beef or food um, you know or something like that um, you forego it for a little while in order to rein in the appetites and to bring them more under control yeah he was saying for good oh okay uh, yeah like brother and sister yeah it is actually a more excellent state to it has to be by mutual agreement of course because remember, when you contract, when you go, when you enter into marriage, you contract bodily rights. So one spouse has rights over the body of another. So it's only by mutual agreement that they can forego these things. Now, because one has to say yes, I'll forego my right of um, of access to your body, and likewise me with you, or whatever the case is. When it comes to being permanent, they both have to um, they have to mutually agree to it. And then what that is, is, is what it is, it's a striving for perfect abstinence, basically, in the sense of they try, and for the spiritual good of each other, to forego a natural good in order to pursue the self-denial and the graces that come with being perfectly abstinent. That is, a, it, it's a perfection, but two things have to be observed. One, not all couples should do it, obviously. The second thing is, is that there are certain circumstances in which it, would, it should be forbidden to certain couples. For instance, if you have if you have a wife who she might, you know, she's a bit flighty. She might say, "Oh yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do it." And then later, you know, five years later, because of the lack of intimacy, she runs off and ends up committing adultery. In a certain certain circumstances like that, it has to be forbidden. Those types of things, to take those vows, um, private vows, can only be done under, the, under a spiritual director licitly, can only be done under a spiritual director or a pastor. And even then, he has to do some type of investigation into it before he should allow them to be done, or he should be very knowledgeable about it. And as a general rule, it should be done, not, I mean, it doesn't have to be. I mean, you can legitimately, you can legitimately state that yes we're engaging in bodily rights we're going to get married but we both have also agreed that once we're married we're going to go forego the rights so that you do this from the beginning it's called the Josephine marriage that's legitimate but it may not be prudent um, under certain circumstances um, but uh, so there are certain circumstances which it simply cannot be allowed and some that it can and normally it should not be done until after childbearing age normally it's more prudent to do it after childbearing age because of the natural inclinations. It's much more difficult. And in certain cases, you know, once you're married and it's morally licit, the restrictions and the, the inhibitions drop naturally. They should. And so as a result, for people to say, you know, we could have access to this thing, but we're going to decide to forego it when they're, you know, and when they're younger, I think it might be a bit imprudent. If you have people who are particularly virtuous and have some type of special grace and you can see it, maybe... But normally these types of things aren't done until 
they're past childbearing age or you know older and again it has to be by mutual consent the husband shouldn't do it just so that he can placate his wife and she'll be happy you know okay we won't never do it again just you know okay quit nagging me it can't be that type of thing it has to be that they really love each other and they're going this for each other's spiritual benefit does that make sense yeah. Well, that brings up the question of uh, national family planning, and I've heard some people argue against it on the basis of that it's really just a form of birth control. Yeah. And and also that this see, it would, would seem to be having this brother sister marriage when you can't have children. I mean, the whole point is to have children. So isn't that just wrong in itself, aside from the prudential aspect? Uh, no, having a right is different from the exercise of the right. When you get married, it is to exchange bodily rights. It's basically to, to take on a right. That doesn't mean you have to exercise it. And the church has always said that virginity or abstinence is a higher virtue than, than conjugal chastity. They've always said that because, why? It more approximates what we're going to be like in heaven. And it also reigns in the appetites better and things of that sort. Um, but with respect to NFP... Actually, this is. I have two articles I want to write with respect to NFP. One is I, I probably won't get around to one of them, but the one I'm going to do because I just, I'm alarmed. NFP cannot be used. Pius Health says that a couple can only forgo having children if there is a proportionate and grave reason. There has to be a, there has to be a serious reason for it. And so nobody can use NFP if there's not a grave reason. Now I know people say, oh, I'm, you know, they, I'm going to use NFP because I want to space my children up. Sorry, it's not a sufficient reason. Or we want to get a boat, so we can't have any more children. Not a good reason. It's not a sufficient reason. Health of the mother, like a grave problem with the health of the mother, or something like that, might be is a sufficient reason. Pius XII gives the example of. Um, uh, or he doesn't give the example of it. People at the time were giving the example when Pius XII came out with the observations. Like, for instance, in China, if you know that they're going to forcibly abort the woman if she becomes pregnant, then that would be a sufficient reason to use NFP perpetually for the entire duration of the marriage if necessary. But there has to be a sufficient reason. One thing I am very alarmed at is that there's two aspects to NFP. There's the philosophical dimension of why it's congruent with the natural law and why it's a good thing, provided it's used in a, under due circumstances. And then there is the physiological aspects of how you actually employ the method. I think it is absolute insanity that they are giving people the anatomical details of how to engage in NFP during pre-Cano retreats. It's absolutely bananas. Everybody in the retreat is already struggling with chastity, and then they drag out this anatomical detail of the female anatomy in relationship to how to engage NFP. It's just bananas. It makes, I mean, it is, it is de facto an occasion of sin for people, for the average couple. So I think it's, it's just something that has to be... My theory is that when people are prepared for marriage, they should be taught about the laicity of using NFP under the due circumstances that is for just cause, and that if they find themselves in that case when they're married, then they go as a couple to a doctor who will teach them how to do it. They, you don't do it in front with there's you know 30 couples in a room. That's just bananas. And, then, and that's one of the articles I think that has to be written because that practice just has to be put an end to. Any other questions? So does that answer the question? Okay. Yeah. Hey, one peripheral question. Sure. All right. When, when a, a married man 
looks at a physically beautiful woman, mm -hmm. no matter what age. Okay? Right. A physically beautiful woman. He looks and he observes. Uh, yeah. you know, without without getting into being scrupulous about whether this is uh, observing or whether this is lusting. Whether, right. You know, but this is this been it's been blurred so much in the, in the last twenty or thirty. Oh years yeah, yeah. That, you know, sometimes you don't know when the look is short enough or long enough, and you don't want you you don't want to accuse yourself of being uh, of looking too long to appreciate the beauty that you see, you know, and... and yeah, it's, as a priest, it's much easier because you just don't bother looking. <laughs> it does. It just makes your life much easier. In fact, who was it? Padre Pio said that um, towards the end of his life, he never even knew any... He never knew by face any of the females in his congregation. But, okay, let me make, let me make two distinctions. Or a distinction, I should say. Beauty, St. Thomas defines as that which is pleasing to a cognitive faculty. So then when, we, when a person looks at something beautiful, they're pleased with it. And that's what happens when guys look at a beautiful woman. They, they become pleased with it. That, now, it's in the cognitive faculty. In other words, it's an intellectual activity. You're looking at them, and you can see that, it's, um, that they're beautiful, and you can take a certain intellectual pleasure in it. That is distinct from taking lust in it, where you have a venereal pleasure from it, and you get aroused or something like that. And... Of course, today people can't make that distinction. You know, the first time they see a beautiful, any time they see a beautiful woman, the first thing they do is think of getting her into bed, which is just, you know, which uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, I've written these books on psychology, and I actually define fixation or one of mental illnesses with fixation as when you always associate one thing with another in a wrong way, and that's exactly what's happening. People are becoming completely fixated as our culture becomes more licensed. In, the, in these areas are becoming more fixated because they can't think. Every time this thing comes into their mind, they can't think of it any other way. Well, that's just a mental illness. You, you, you know, you just, there's just something flawed in, you know, upstairs. Okay. Okay, having made that distinction, for a married man to appreciate the beauty of another woman is not sinful, provided, of course, modesty is being observed and providing he's not taking any venereal pleasure in it, but it's a spiritual imperfection. And the reason being is is that he his affections not not necessarily in the sense of um, uh, affection in the sense of venereal but here we're talking about just intellectual affections he should only be reserving for his wife for the sake of the exclusivity. Also, if if guys like going around again, it's not necessarily sinful provided um, you know it's you know if you're observing you can appreciate their beauty on an intellectual level fine. But it can also be the occasion of sins. You have to be careful of that aspect of it. But it's also a spiritual imperfection because people don't necessarily practice due detachment from it. Guys become attached to looking at the beauty of other women, and they have to begin to break that attachment once they become married. And that's why it's a spiritual imperfection. And all, like all imperfections, it can lead you into sin, and that's why you have to be careful with it. Even if a guy is very virtuous, I know guys that are very virtuous, and they, they can look at women, you know, and... and, and you know, only uh, intellectually appreciate their beauty. The problem is, though, is, is that it's not exercising due detachment. Any other questions? Does that answer the question, you think? Okay. Okay, that's it. If you'll kneel, I'll give you a blessing. Benedictio de omnipotentis, patris et filii et spiritus sanctions, super vos et semper. Amen.